Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Uh, welcome everyone to another Riffs Resolve yeah. Riffs episode. Happy uh, Friday and cheers. Welcome Preet. Happy Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry I don't have alcohol with me. We'll pretend that there's scotch in here. Yeah. So you say it's okay, man. You're exactly. sitting with us. No one's the wiser. Before we do get started, uh, let's just uh, clear the air here and uh, make sure everyone knows this is for information and hopefully entertainment purposes only. And none of this should be taken as investment advice. So. Preet, welcome. Give us a little Thank bit you. of your background, if you wouldn't mind, for those that might not be familiar with you. Uh, sure. Yeah, I was just going to say when you said clear the air, I was like, did you guys like have a big fight in the last episode? <laughs> <laughs> Something like uh, that. Uh, listen, it's my pleasure to be here. I, I've known Adam for a couple of years and uh, the rest of the guys at uh, Resolve. Um, my background is I used to be an advisor, but if we go back a few careers before that. Um, I originally studied neuroscience, then I went to auto racing, and then ended up in the finance industry. And I always found myself going back towards the neuroscience component, especially when I got to the racetrack and then into the financial services, where I realized that, you know, everything really is about psychology over uh, numbers. And so that's kind of been where I found myself playing in that sort of general sandbox. So after I left sort of the, the rat race, the nine to five, there is such a thing in the financial services. Um, I started working um, as a consultant. So I work on a number of projects um, dealing with commercial applications of behavioral finance for wealth management firms. And I recently went back to school again to um, pursue some research looking at trying to quantify the value of financial advice across different delivery channels, specifically in Canada, but there is some sort of global applicability. 
Nice. So um, you're currently working on your PhD, right? And um, so what exactly is your thesis? So, so that we can, we can narrow the scope a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So it's technically a DBA, which is a doctorate of business administration. And um, the other PhDs give you a hard time when you tried to say it was a, a PhD. Is that why you had to qualify that? Pretty much. I mean, it's one of those <laughs> things where it depends on where you are in the world. Um, they're, they're equivalent. They're both terminal degrees. I think the main delineation is with a PhD, for the most part, it's more theory and the DBA is a little bit more industry focused. So it tends to be people who have been in industry and they're looking at a specific question because they've spent the majority of their career looking at this and saying, there's a gap here, you know, in the, in the academic body of knowledge. And I've got access to data or insights that maybe are a little bit different. So it's, it's a little bit different, but they're both terminal. You could, you know, teach and, and whatnot. Um, and most DBA students I've come across are also part-time to sort of recognize that they're still in industry as well. Right. But essentially what the question is that I've been looking at is trying to figure out what is the value of financial advice? And listen, I used to be a financial advisor. I own a company now where my clients are financial advisors, but a lot of people also know me as an investor advocate. And I can be very sort of adversarial to the industry in terms of some of the practices that we've seen. And I'm not alone. I think a lot of people recognize that there are some structural conflicts of interest that kind of engineer this this system where people really question the value of advice. And I know that there are great advisors out there. And I know that there are some absolutely garbage people out there who call themselves advisors and are not giving good advice. And anyone in the industry knows that. And a lot of people outside of the industry know that. So where do we sort of figure this out? Because there has to be value in advice for it to sort of continue or to get better. And so if we can sort of answer these questions about, all right, well, how do we determine what advice is? Where do we, uh, where do we find that value? Then this can help consumers make better choices in terms of where they go and look for advice. And it can help industry hopefully create models that better suit the people that they are purporting to, to service. Do you go into trying to understand a little bit of maybe the regulatory hurdles or some of the uh, incentive misalignments that might create this uh, scenario where advice given isn't precisely what might be the most uh, applicable to an individual? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, lately, yes. So here's the... Here's the problem that I have. So the data collection for my thesis um, happened pre-pandemic. And since the pandemic hit, we've really seen a spotlight shone on this, this new emerging investor class who really doesn't have a good place to slot into in terms of where they get advice. So essentially, if you take a look at the, the sort of the last big innovation in terms of advice would be robo-advisors. Uh, for better or for worse. So we can talk a, a, a lot about that. But so this is something that has come onto the marketplace and a lot of people are grabbing toward, gravitating towards that. But if you look at sort of the dimension of do-it-yourself to advised, there are uh, this group of people who don't really fit into either category. And it has to do with this extra dimension of execution. And so this ties into your question about the regulatory aspect. So when it comes to execution, if you set up a DIY, you know, a discount brokerage platform for someone, it's usually operating under what's, an, what's called an OEO model, an order execution only, which means they cannot give you advice. 
And so if you want to place your own trade, but you're looking for advice on what trades to place, you're basically relegated to internet forums, newsletters, whatever it is. And we've seen that, you know, Wall Street Bets has been a big source of information, good and bad for a lot of people. And so we're not really giving them as an industry a place where they can do some of the execution because people want to roll up their sleeves a little bit and, and place those trades. That's kind of fun. But they don't want to necessarily do it all on their own or only have to rely on these unofficial sources of advice. And so there's this big gap in the marketplace there that's been identified. And, you know, had I started my research just three years later, I feel like it would have been gone in a totally different direction because there's so much to talk about, especially with respect to, to what regulators can do. And another aspect of it is we're seeing people seek advice outside of traditional channels. So we've seen the, the rise of, you know, Finfluencers, financial influencers on Instagram, TikTok, you name it. And they don't seem to follow any sort of regulatory guidelines. They're not held to certain standards. They're not required to register. And some of them say crazy shit. Uh, sorry, am I? <laughs> yeah, you're okay, good. Here. Yeah. You're good. Okay, I'll, I'll be ju judicious about it. Um, and some people say some wild things. And there's no one there to say, you cannot say that. Because if someone who was registered and licensed said some of the things that are being said on these, on these channels, you know, they would get reprimanded pretty quickly. So this is something that regulators are now trying to, to figure out. Should there be some kind of new light registration that would serve this, this growing market of people who want just a little bit of help, but we also want to regulate that, that help that we give them? Yeah, I don't know how you... There's, there's all these different classes of, of quasi-advice givers now, right? There's, I mean, for a while there was newsletter writers and they were unregulated. And then the regulators um, forced them to get some sort of uh, license. And now, you, I mean, how do you differentiate between a YouTube stock jockey entertainer and, you know, a, a, someone on BNN who is talking about this stock or that stock? Um, I guess it's in the language that that's used, but I mean, a lot of it is sort of interspersed with different types of rants and, and, entertainment dimensions, it's just getting harder and harder to classify what is advice versus news versus entertainment. <laughs> well, it's, a great analogy. it's a great analogy because look at, um, I think it's Fox News has to go to court every now and then and say, well, we're not news, we're entertainment, right? Because the, to say some of the things that they say, and it's the same thing with, for example, some YouTubers who are, you know, uh, going and creating these videos with investment theses or whatever and rants. And they all sort of have in their disclaimers in their video descriptions, things like this is entertainment, this is not financial advice. And then they proceed to give financial advice. So something doesn't add up. At some point, someone is gonna have to take a stand and say, well, no, if they are going and telling people certain things, then it needs to be either regulated or there are certain things that they can't say. So sort of a catch all that has kind of worked in the past is if you're not giving advice that is tailored to an individual, so you're giving it to sort of a homogenous group, you kind of have a little bit more leeway and you don't, you're not required to register. But once you start talking about securities and making recommendations to someone's specific situation, that's where the line is crossed. But we're seeing now like so much information online and people clearly seem to be crossing some of these lines. But beyond that, we're also seeing kind of this generation's version of commissioned financial salespeople 
instead, instead of getting product commissions from mutual funds or insurance contracts, they're getting it through affiliate commissions. Um, and I feel that if you are making a lot of money driving people to sign up for this crypto exchange or to buy this token or whatever, that there needs to be some kind of oversight. I'm not saying we have to be all big brother about it, but there needs to be some kind of guidelines because we're just seeing so many people getting such horrific advice in some cases. Well, I mean, it's just absurd that a, an investor, a, a, a typical investor who's not accredited or qualified can't buy a market neutral fund from a, an established credentialed asset management company, but you know, they can be guided into these crazy NFTs and, and tokens and uh, penny stocks by YouTube influencers who are getting paid indirectly through some sort of indirect quasi commission model, or even just, you know, paid in advertising dollars by um, uh, companies that are affiliated with the investment industry. You know, it's a, there's just a lot of different ways that there can be conflicts of interest. And a lot of them are very nuanced and difficult to spot. And isn't this just a function of staying ahead of regulations? I mean, a lot of this stuff is relatively new. And so the regulation hasn't been fully fleshed out or rolled out. I mean, in the U.S., Biden recently came out with sort of an idea or a framework, if you will, of how they might regulate the uh, digital asset space, but it's still very nascent. And so I, I think a lot of the examples you're describing there, Adam, have to do with people staying ahead of where the regulatory gray zone currently expands. I agree, but it's my observation is that it's typically not, you're not getting people who who originally worked in some regulated domain of the industry migrating to TikTok videos in order to, to, to generate revenue. Now, now, to be fair, I don't have a lot of experience with that. I, I don't think I've ever watched one of those videos, but my sense is it's mostly sort of younger people who have maybe taken an interest in investing on their own and started talking about it on TikTok or YouTube and got experienced and gained some knowledge and, and then gained a real following, you know, maybe because they're entertaining, plus they were on the right side of a bull market, plus they were on the right side of a growth oriented bull market, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you've got a lot of followers who are sort of mistaking um, a bull market for some sort of skill or edge, you know, which is very easy to do in this business. So I, I all to say that it doesn't strike me as, as though there's a lot of previously regulated experienced investors who are trying to dodge regulations by moving to TikTok. Yeah, I think there's, you hit on a number of really interesting points. There's, there's a certain element of, you know, an anti-establishment perspective. You know, I just don't want to deal with big industry uh, because I've grown up watching uh, multiple, uh, you know, bailouts of, of Wall Street uh, off the back of Main Street. So there's a, a little bit of a distrust. There's a disenfranchisement, I think, as well. Um, think about younger investors thinking that this is their only way to sort of get back up to where they think they should be because the deck that has been thrown at them is so stacked against them in terms of, you know, high debt loads, uh, high house prices, job precarity, um, you know, um, decreasing job benefits, uh, more gig economy work. And so they probably feel that 
you know, there is a way to sort of catch up in this by swinging for the fences because what else do I have to lose? It's yeah. the YOLO, it's the YOLO mentality. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's certainly a part of it um, to do with that. And so the question is, you know, can regulators stay ahead? I don't think traditionally that's ever been the playbook. It's generally been wait until something has become an issue or that they can clearly connect the dots and say, we need to head this off at the past now. Um, they don't tend to sort of say, well, here's where we think everything's going to go and let's create a regime that sort of um, tackles that world that we envision because they they really don't sort of look look at things that way. They kind of look at, all right, well, what are what are the bad actors doing and let's let's put some regulations on them. So the fact that there's all this new stuff out there, I think that there's going to be a few more years where people will take advantage of the gray areas in terms of the law and regulatory oversight. And so people are going to get hurt. So the question really is what can the industry do to, to acknowledge this state of affairs? And I think that we're going to see, and we're starting to already see it, a lot more innovation in high volume light advice where people aren't going to say, listen, I'm, you know, I'm 30 years old. I don't want to go in and talk to someone about what my year by year cash flow is going to be when I'm 66. Like for them, that's so far off and they've got bigger problems to deal with. And those problems don't necessarily require big, huge, comprehensive engagements. They may be more likely to gravitate to a model where it's more like, I don't know, like the, the family doctor model. You go in when something ails you. And if the doctor identifies, you know, an issue that's bigger or more serious, then they refer you to a specialist. And so I feel that some kind of model, more innovation in the light advice, holistic advice, but light engagement is where we're going to see a lot of growth. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because we've observed some of these dynamics at play here. And a lot of the stuff that we're watching, particularly in the last uh, few months, given with uh, what happened last year with inflation and obviously the geopolitical uh, shifts that we're observing, that it's possible that what's worked in the last 10 years isn't going to be working that well for the next 10. And so it's usually the case that a lot of these self-directed uh, plans have these guardrails that will uh, nudge people in the direction of some combination of stock bond portfolios. So how do you think about that in the context of a potential for paradigm shift and, and a lot of the older uh, or, or the more recent portfolio models not working as well in the coming years? Yes, great question. Um, so <clears throat> if we go back to the concept of sort of what we'll call RoboAdvisor 1.0 um, and tying this back to um, my research question, which is quantifying the value of advice um, so that you can figure out if what you're paying is worth it or not. And so the academic body of knowledge historically has been more portfolio centric and looking at rate of return. Do you diversify people's portfolios more than they would on their own and so on and so forth. And it's easy to understand why it's a lot easier to get that data and sort of run those regressions. And uh, that's, that's fun, but the industry has always been sort of shifting. So you know, May 1st, 1975, when we had May Day and commissions were deregulated by the SEC, everyone thought that discount brokerages were going to, you know, uh, basically replace the traditional stockbroker. 
it's not really what happened. I mean, that was back in 1975 when we still have a thriving wealth management industry. So what happened was <clears throat> the industry responded by changing what they provided to be, instead of focusing on just transactions, they went from single security advice to portfolio management. And the last shift has been from portfolio management to wealth management and how all the things work together. You know, thinking about taxes and asset location as opposed to just asset allocation and, you know, estate planning and what have you. So the industry has responded. And so the sort of practitioner journals have, have said, you know, we need a framework for measuring value in the context that is not portfolio centric, but is planning centric. And so coming up with these ways to sort of quantitatively uh, put a number on, you know, how well is someone doing in terms of their debt load? Uh, what about their asset allocation? What about their tax planning, et cetera? That was part of the work, the framework. And then once we had this framework, then we could basically say, okay, so now we can sort of assign a number on these different dimensions of wealth management. And so let's say that there's 10. One of them is asset allocation, one is savings rate, one is tax plan, whatever. If you now take this model and apply it to the different channels of advice, what you might find is if you go to a robo-advisory model, robo-advisor 1.0, maybe they did a great job in you know, putting together a portfolio that you know, got rid of some of the basic portfolio management mistakes, like automatic rebalancing was just done automatically. They matched your uh, portfolio to your risk profile, what have you. So along one dimension, they might do really well. But across all the other dimensions, like if you go to a robo-advisor and say, hey, I've got 50 grand in credit card debt, does it say, great, you should not be investing with us. Don't give us your money. No, they're going to say, well, how much are you going to give us? And we'll manage it for you. And so they may not increase someone's score in terms of their, their debt management, their insurance coverage, their estate planning, all these other dimensions of wealth. So if you compare that to say, an ideal full service model. So let's say you've got the ideal uh, advisory practice and they're doing all the right things. And they're giving people proper advice on setting up a portfolio, getting them to save more money, getting them to have the profit, proper asset location, making sure that they have their wills up to date and their powers of attorney and all these different aspects of what they are managing, then they might be increasing someone's overall score a lot more. Let's say that their overall score increases four times what a robo-advisor is doing, but a robo-advisor costs, let's say, three quarters or a half of what a full-service engagement might cost. Well, now, instead of saying, well, a robo-advisor is cheaper, now you're going to say, well, okay, I'm paying less, but I'm getting you know, only one-tenth of the things that I should be getting advice on. And so this framework, I think, will help, hopefully, um, create an incentive for you know, the robo-advisor 2.0s to do a lot more than just what they have been doing. And I think the other criticism is that traditional robo-advisor platforms have been rooted in these, uh, what are now kind of, you know, sort of older ways of thinking about portfolio management. So um, I think there is going to be a lot of change in terms of how they, they build their portfolios. But based on what we've been seeing in the last little while, I mean, I'm not as familiar with the exact portfolio breakdowns of all the robo-advisors in the world, but they do tend to stick towards the the very, you know, here are some stocks, here are some bonds, we're geographically diversified. Um, but do you see commodities? Do you see other alternative asset classes? Um, do you see uh, a dynamic or uh, adaptive asset allocation? I haven't really seen those at all, but I imagine that those are coming down the road. 
So how do you, a lot of those um, dimensions of wealth management are pretty subjective, right? Like how do you weight the value added from ensuring that a person's wills and estate documents are up to date against having a proper asset allocation or having a, a appropriate asset location or some of the other dimensions of the wealth management process. It seems like they're on very different scales and it would be very, it would be challenging to sort of figure out how to even ordinarily rank the value there. Yeah. Great question. Because in terms of how like the resolution that we get in terms of quantifying the value of portfolio advice, we don't have any resolution uh, when it comes to some of these other factors, as you mentioned. So I can tell you about the framework that, that, that I've been sort of working on is um, it, it's a dynamic uh, model. It is sensitive to where people are in their sort of wealth management journey. So I'll give you an example. So one example would be disability insurance coverage. So we know from talking to a lot of planners that disability insurance is one of the most important insurance that people can have. Because if you are young and you lose your ability to earn an income, you're guaranteed to be broke for the rest of your life. So how important is your disability insurance coverage when you're younger? It's very important. Now, if you're 64 and you uh, don't have disability insurance coverage, it's really not a big deal, right? So assuming that you've built up your assets over time, you're effectively self-insured at this point if you're close to your retirement date. And so whether you have or don't have the appropriate amount of disability coverage is almost insignificant in your sort of normalized financial well-being number, if you will. So the models that um, sort of I've been applying try to create these individual sensitivity loading factors for the different dimensions of wealth. So again, just another example, um, you know, when it comes to uh, let's call portfolio costs. So if you're starting from zero and let's say that, you know, you don't really have a ton of options, maybe someone puts you into, I don't know, a 3% MER mutual fund, whatever, and you're putting in 50 bucks a month. I mean, you're paying, what, a couple bucks in that first year? In the grand scheme of things, not a big deal. As your assets grow, it is going to be a bigger deal. So the, the sensitivity of that factor is not your age. It's the size of your portfolio. So if you've got a really big portfolio and you found out someone was being charged 3%, you'd be like, what? <laughs> That's criminal almost. Um, but that can happen when you're young because maybe you inherit you know, $10 million portfolio. And just because you're old doesn't mean you have a lot of money. You could be in your 60s and just starting to save and invest for the first time. So again, the, the sensitivity to portfolio cost is the size of your portfolio. So each of the factors does have some kind of recognition that the importance of those individual factors is different depending on someone's individual situation. So it's not perfect. Like I said, it's not going to be as the same high resolution that you would get with, you know, all the metrics we have for portfolios, but it's better than what we had before, which was nothing. So it's very much early days when coming up with a, a value framework that is planning centric as opposed to portfolio centric for sure. It seems like there are, um, there are dimensions of the advisor selection process for an individual seeking advice that would be more sort of check boxes. Um, mm -hmm. They're not kind of continua so much as they are, um, do you provide, 
do you supervise the will and estate documents? You know, do you have a team that does that or do you do that? Um, do you take the time to make sure that my, that my investments are in the right location, RRSP or, you know, non-taxable versus taxable accounts, that kind of stuff. And then there are dimensions of the process that are far more subjective, right? So I can sort of envision and where I'm, where I'm trying to go here is I think it's a very hard problem for an individual to select a financial advisor um, to get them where they want to go. And I, and I feel like there are, there are certain things that you can, you, can, you can give an individual and say, make sure that they have these boxes ticked, that they will help you with. And those boxes will be slightly different depending on your stage of life and your financial objectives, et cetera. Um, but there's going to be a limited number, right? And then I, I feel like most sort of modern advisors are, are going to tick those boxes, right? So as time goes on, it's going to be harder and harder to differentiate on those, on, on those bases, which is good, right? Like the advisors are getting more comprehensive. They're getting more qualified in these sort of relatively formulaic dimensions of the process, right? So all those sort of checkbox formulaic dimensions of the process held equal, how, what, are, what kind of guidance would you give to individuals who are, you know, trying to select advisors among a group that, that already sort of have those other boxes ticked? Yeah. So boy, it's a, it's a question that I've been talking with people in the industry for 20 years and I still don't have a great answer. Right. And there's so many factors to consider. So the consensus has been, you know, if you have a household and they have a very complex situation, they have a substantial amount of assets, they have choice, right? There's a lot of competition for that type of client. As you go down the income and wealth spectrum, the choice really and the ability to create any type of checklist to say, this is what you should be looking for in an engagement it really starts to fall apart. But wouldn't you also say that the, the need for many of the items on the checklist also attenuates a little bit as you move down the, the wealth curve, right? You just don't have as complex a, an estate. Yes. You don't have as yeah. many investment options or different types of investment accounts. Anyways. So this, I think, is actually the opportunity. So creating some kind of standardized um, process for the masses of people that have relatively simple um, planning needs compared to the people with the really complex situations, this should be an opportunity. There should be a way to use technology to provide more standardization in the planning advice that people get who have relatively easier situations to plan around. Because those are things that could be more easily replaced with, with algorithms and formulas. And we don't see that yet. We still see, uh, you know, especially in, in Canada, you know, we still see that it is product-driven, quota-driven. When you don't have a lot of money, it is very much about the product as opposed to the person. That's just the reality of it. And what's the interface, Preet? It's a typically 
because the way I sort of might characterize it as um, somebody above a certain age group, so maybe Gen X and above, you don't have quite enough money to attract a, a, a wealth advisor from one of the full service advisory firms. So you end up being directed to the bank branch and then the bank branch directs you to that bank's mutual fund products. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of that. I mean, and, and part of the, part of the issue is that again, let's say you have less than $50,000, less than $50,000. You know, the advisors who we would look around and say, this is someone I would, you know, reckon my mother go to, right? You don't find a lot of that. You can't really say that a lot. Um, there's there's more advisors by number sort of in that, or I should say maybe salespeople sort of in those channels. And it's very hard to sort of pick out who's doing a really great job. But once you have sort of identified either internally or to yourself that, hey, this is something that I'm, I'm good at, I like doing, you naturally start to move into these different channels of advice. And, and here is, so here's the other side of the coin that I want to sort of challenge people to think about um, is when it comes to dealing with, you know, these, these households that may be very desirable. There's a huge selection issue that we need to sort of think about, and there's multiple facets to that selection issue. So we have seen lots of studies that will say, you know, people with money um, or people with advisors have more money, right? And these are totally correlational. Uh, a lot of them have been correlational because we know if you don't have a lot of money, it's maybe not as much of a, a um, priority for you to seek someone out. And if you're on the other side of the table, you're an advisor, you're only going after people with money, right? And that historically has been the case because of you know how the industry has been been compensated. But to go another step forward, when you think about the quality advisors out there, they tend to gravitate towards higher and higher asset minimums before they start turning people away. And then maybe after 15 to 20 years, some practice management consultant comes to them and says, you know, you really should cut out the 80% of your clients that only generate 20% of your revenue and focus on your ideal client. And so then you are now sort of excluding people. And what happens to those people that, that you've culled from the herd? Where did they go? So there's, you know, people who are maybe more malleable and better to work with and have good sort of, you know, privilege, financial background or whatever, they tend to find the really good advisors and those advisors tend to want more of those and they kind of end up together. And so you'll have these situations where, you know, these high quality practices deal with, you know, great households, great clients, and it's great relationships. But that is such a, seems to be relatively unique in the grand scheme of things. There's so many more people who are always fumbling around trying to find, well, who is my forever advisor going to be? And so one of the other dimensions we have to think about as well um, is the client. We, we tend to paint this picture of, you know, what's a good advisor, what's a bad advisor. And one of the things I've been thinking about more lately is um, what's a good client, what's a bad client, not in terms of asset levels or complexity of their situation, but are they going to be a good client? If you find an advisor who is, let's say you've somehow identified them to be a perfect advisor, you can't just assume that every client that goes to them is going to get the same experience or is going to have the same outcome because people are people. They're all individual. Some people are, are malleable and they can take advice and work well with it. Some people can't be coached. And what happens to the people who maybe have a bad experience with a good advisor? 
or vice versa. What happens to the people who are really good potential clients because they have the personality traits that, you know, if you gave them the right advice, they'll do great things in terms of achieving their financial potential, but they went to a bad experience. So there's the other side of the coin as well. And instead of kind of just looking at good advice, bad advice, what should be looking for? I think we need to think about how do we deal with different situations and be a little bit more bespoke as opposed to off the rack. But again, this is a luxury of that you can only sort of deal with when it comes to, you know, these ideal sort of households. So anyways, I could go on and on about this one aspect alone. It sounds like you're describing one of the strongest dynamics that is driving a lot of the uh, TikTok and YouTube influencers that we were talking about earlier, because they're filling in this void that uh, a lot of the clients are finding now that they get fired from their, after they get fired from their advisors, so to speak. So it, it, it sounds like if, if, if a lot of advisors, <clears throat> if what you just described is representative of a large cohort of advisors, then there is a real need for, for some form of advice for those retail clients that are not uh, having uh, their needs met. Yeah, I mean, if, if you sort of go by extension, you know, if let's say, and, and this is tying a little bit back to the questions about um, regulations and how they've sort of kept pace with innovations in, in the space, and you've got more and more advisors say, well, I'm not allowed, my firm, my compliance officer won't let me even talk about Bitcoin in someone's portfolio and how it works in their plan or whatever. So what does that person do? They'll go and they'll find where people are talking about it in an unregulated space on in social media. And they will find people that are basically just confirming what they, they already uh, sort of believe, whatever their worldview is, and reinforce it. So there's that confirmation bias running rampant right now in social media because of this, I guess, this leapfrog effect that we have with innovation and regulation and, and regulation kind of is always going to be a step behind. So... This has become more of an issue and we've seen it highlighted in the media with, you know, whether it's Wall Street bets or, or, you know, the NFT craze and just some of the strange things that you're seeing. And just to be clear, I'm not anti-crypto. I, I think that there's great potential in that space. I think it's widely uh, misunderstood. And this, this mismatch of, of people's knowledge of, about the space is leading to really bad outcomes. I wonder if you've got any insight on whether there are any regulatory um, frameworks around the world that might serve as examples that that the rest of the world might try to converge upon. And I'm thinking specifically, for example, about Australia's superannuation system. Um, and I know that, for example, Peru has a similar superannuation uh, system because we happen to travel there and speak to some of the the CIOs as superannuation funds. But, um, you know, one of the things I, I've said for going on 10, 15 years is that one of the greatest policy errors that um, governments made over the last 50 years was the privatization of retirement savings, right? The, you know, forcing individuals who have very little experience, that they aren't taught the basics of economics or or investing or saving or planning in school or at any, you know, stage in their, in their public, public education. Um, and yet we force them downstream to have to make these incredibly critical choices about their financial future. And so I'm just wondering whether or not there are better 
overall systems out there that you might advocate for um, Canada and other countries to maybe model themselves after in order to maybe just make it easier for individuals to be more successful with their investing and saving? Yeah, that's a that's a whole big can of worms there. Um, I'm not a you know sort of a, a political science expert by any stretch of the imagination, but my understanding is that you know anytime you have a regime where there is a lot of sort of um, state regulated savings, um, you've got uh, maybe less choice. That sometimes. Uh, some party will come in and say, you should have more choice and we're not going to force you to save into this. We think you should do it on yourself. And because we're present biased, you know, it, it's that dangling carrot of having more money today to do things that we want to do, especially if we feel that we're struggling, which we may not recognize the impact it has down the road in terms of our ability to fund our lifestyle down the road. So, you know, I think there is that political component that comes in. So if you created a system where, maybe there was more government support and, you know, maybe it's higher tax rate that, that funds that or whatever it is, someone will come along and say, there's another better way to do it. And we think it's lower taxes and more control on your part. And depending on where a society is, you could see any, any effort to try and build that up can get taken away. So I think that that's kind of like a pendulum that swings. Right. So, and I think the problem is it's not until you've identified it as being this, at crisis levels that someone will step in and say, well, maybe we should, you know, um, increase the, the guaranteed income when you're a senior and maybe we should increase uh, savings rates into either superannuation or in um, South America, some of the systems that they have down there. So I don't want to wade too much into that because I, I feel that it's more than just, you know, what is one system that is better than the other? Because I think those are always subject to change based on sort of like the, the political factor. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, no, I, I could see that being a huge differentiating factor across uh, cultures, countries, jurisdictions, and all of that. But maybe from your uh, history of study, right, you, you've been a student of uh, behavioral finance for some time. Maybe walk us through a little bit of the behavioral nudges and some of the practices that you found over the years are helpful in getting advisors to uh, align their clients with, with, with maybe the right uh, advice and help them make the right decisions with, without sounding overly formulaic and, and just getting them to stick to something which we know uh, empirically can be quite challenging. Yeah, well, I think one of the biggest issues that's been identified is, is sort of the hyperbolic discounting or the present bias that we have where um, we just look at the world differently depending on when the impact of our decisions are going to be felt, right? So, and this applies across the board, you know, physical fitness, diet, saving for the future. And so a lot of people will say, you know, <clears throat> next week, I'll go to the gym four days out of, out of seven. Right. And you think, of course, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm motivated. And next week, you know, I'm going to go to that gym and I've got my routine all written down and everything. And then next week rolls by and you're thinking, what the hell was I thinking? I'm not going to the gym four times a week. And so we have these time inconsistent preferences. And this is this is fundamentally one of the biggest things about saving for retirement is you're asking people, do you want to forego consumption today um, where it's more painful? So the pain is magnified by foregoing consumption right now because it's in the present. 
And the benefit is so far down the road, it's abstract. Uh, we don't sort of feel what that, that positive impact would be for saving that money today. So we're disconnected. So anything that we can do to either get people more connected with the future and to think about the future, make it less abstract is good. But the other thing that I think is probably the most effective, and we've had, I think we have a lot of empirical evidence for this, is that processes are, are probably the most important thing that you can instill into your finances to circumvent having to make these, these trade-off choices all the time. So when you ask people who have successfully retired, what is the single best thing you ever did for your financial you know, potential? And to a T, they always say, well, maybe making my savings automatic having someone force me to save. So going back to what you were saying, Adam, you know, one of the benefits of being forced to save is that if you don't really have that choice, maybe you don't sort of recognize that it's such a great thing at the time. But when you retire, like, oh man, thank, I got, thank God we had those two teacher's pensions, right? Mm -hmm. So people always look back at those sort of forced savings uh, regimes as this has been amazing, but getting people to understand that in the moment is really difficult. So here's a great, um, example of, um, you know, how this present bias works. So um, there was a, a study where they asked people, hey, we're going to do this workplace seminar on, on workplace safety. You know, it's next week. Pick the snack that you want. We're going to bring in either fruit salad or chocolate cake or something like that. And when you ask people to make their snack selection in advance, two thirds picked the healthy choice, one third picked the, the chocolate. And then on the day of the workplace seminar, the experimenter said, oh, you know what? We're sorry. We lost the sheet where everyone had signed up for what they want, but we've got tons of food. So you can just make your choice today. What do you want? And then it was completely inverted. Now two thirds picked the, you know, the unhealthy snack and only one third picked the healthy snack. And that's because, you know, when we're thinking about making a decision that we won't feel the impacts uh, for until the future, we tend to think a little bit more rationally or at least better more aligned to our, our self-interests. But when we're making a decision in the moment, that's when we become more instinctual. That's when we start to rely more on our impulses. So it's kind of like, you remember in Interstellar when they went to that planet that was in the like event horizon of that black hole and time passed like super slowly? It totally warps the passage of time when you're close to a gravity source. And our ability to make decisions in our long-term best interests are totally warped when we feel the effects today in terms of giving up or giving up consumption. That was so a great where, nerdy reference. Uh, the, it, which totally appealed to us and probably most of our, <laughs> our listeners and watchers. So well done. But I was just thinking that the, um, oh, you totally derailed me, Richard, with your nerdy reference. Now I'm thinking about interesting. <laughs> um, well, while you're thinking oh. about it, I'll give you an example of, again, where we've seen the impacts of asking people to instill a process and how we've seen the positive impact. So Richard Thaler and Shlomo Bernardsi wrote this paper, Save More Tomorrow, Tomorrow, right? And so they went to a whole bunch of 401k plan sponsors and they said, hey, you know, when you have new employees join the company, you ask them, how much do you want to contribute to their em employee savings plan? And, you know, they, they pick a certain amount and they basically added like one little box on the form that says, when you get your next raise, what percent do you want to commit to your, to your future savings? And so there's kind of two things going on there. One is you're making a decision where you'll feel the impacts in the future. So you're more likely to make a, uh, a more rational decision, for lack of a better sort of phrase. 
And the second thing is, you know, if you ask someone, hey, do you want to save 200 bucks more per month starting now? Well, then they have to forego $200 of consumption right now. But if you ask them, hey, when you get an extra 500 bucks, then do you want to take 200 bucks? They're still experiencing an increase in cash flow. So they don't feel that loss aversion as well. Yep. So um, if you can get people to make decisions in advance, that I think it goes a long way. And, um, and that one study that the save more tomorrow for tomorrow, I think Cass Sunstein did an analysis or, or wrote about it, the analysis that over 10 years, the companies that participated in that, that experiment saw an increase in their 401k balances of just under $27 billion in 10 years compared to companies that didn't. Yeah. Well, that's a huge effect for sure. And I can totally see why, because you're committing, you're still getting some extra spending and you're not seeing what you're losing out on by um, contributing more to your, to your savings. So that's, that's a really smart policy. And it also seems to jive with this, this notion that I think has kind of been well-established now that we have sort of a finite number of good decisions that we can make on any given day. Afterwards, we're just tired and exhausted and we'll probably rely even more on our reptilian brain and not make a good decision. So if we can avoid taxing that a finite pool of good decisions on any given day, it is, just allows us to make better decisions over time. I love that you brought that up. This is something I believe wholeheartedly in. I have 20 of these black t-shirts. I wear the exact same thing every day. It's one it didn't last escape thing my notice. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was a, a, a great um, blog on, oh, I forget where it was, but this guy tied in together these two experiments, but, which I thought were just phenomenal in explaining just the, the cognitive load that we experience when we make decisions and how the optimality of our choices goes down when we don't give our, ourselves time to replenish our sort of our willpower. And so the two experiments were very, very cool. First one was researchers lured subjects in under the guise of studying the impact of um, geography change, environmental impact, uh, environmental change on memory recall. And so they divided people into two groups. And if you're in group number one, you had to memorize a two digit number, really simple task. And if you're in group number two, you had to memorize a seven digit number. So again, relatively simple task. And then once you got your number, you would have to go down a hallway, find a researcher in another room. So that's the environment change. It wasn't climate change. It was geographical change. Um, and then tell them what your number was. And then as a throwaway statement, they said, as you walk down the hall, there's going to be a snack cart with fruit salad and chocolate cake. Pick one. And so everyone, you know, went through the experiments and then they tallied up the results and they said, you know, there was nothing new to be learned about, you know, could people memorize seven digits or two numbers and whether they walked down a hall or not, they couldn't care less about that. They wanted to see what snack they picked. And it turns out that if you only had to memorize a two digit number, you pick the fruit salad and chocolate cake in equal proportions. But if you had to memorize a seven digit number, you almost always pick the chocolate cake, right? And essentially, you know, if you think about it, memorizing a two, two digit number is simple. Um, and so when you get to the snack cart, you've got brain power left over to use and exercise willpower to say, well, that chocolate cake looks really good, but I know the fruit salad is better for my long-term health. So you're more likely to pick the fruit salad. But if you're memorizing seven digits and our working memory's capacity is seven digits, then you have basically no brain power left over. So you walk by this and you just rely on instinct. You get primal, like that cake needs to be in me. And then you go down the hall. 
So that was the first experiment. The second one that he tied into this was, um, again, subjects were divided into two groups and they had two tasks to perform. Task number one is they had to squeeze these exercise hand grips. In, in the world of psychology, they're, they're not super stiff. It's not a measure of strength. It's a measure of willpower. And the longer you can hold on, the more willpower you have. And the global average is like two minutes before people let go. Task number two was you had to make a decision as to whether or not you wanted to buy this high-end brand name soap that was on sale at a big discount, yes or no. If you're in group number one, squeeze the hand grip first, then make a decision about the soap. Group number two, make a decision about the soap first, then squeeze the hand grip. So if you're in group one, you squeeze first, then you make a decision about the soap. Everyone is able to hold on for two minutes to the exercise hand grip, and then they make their decision about the soap. If you're in the second group, though, and you make a decision about the soap first, if you're high income, you hold on for two minutes, just like everyone else in the world. But if you're low income, one minute and 20 seconds, a full 40 seconds less than everyone, everybody else. And remember, in that first trial where everyone squeezed first and then made a decision about the soap, everyone, high income, low income, held on for two minutes. So it was something about making that decision about the soap that impacted people who are low income more than high income. And essentially what happened was they said, listen, you know, if you're high income and someone asks you, hey, do you want to buy this soap? You're like, I don't know, do I want that soap? Yes or no? It's not a big deal. But if you're low income and someone asks you, hey, do you want this amazing sale on this high-end soap that's deeply discounted? You have to make a trade-off choice, which requires exercising willpower because you have to give something up out of your current expenses in order to um, get that soap. And so if you've use that, that willpower muscle, and then you're tested for how much willpower you have, it's depletable, right? That, that kind of shows us that willpower is depletable. And the optimality of our choices goes down the more we deplete our, our willpower. So, you know, back in the pre-pandemic days, I used to always tell people, if you're going to make the most important decisions, if you're an advisor, you can meet with a client. If you're a client, you want to meet with your advisor, do it on a Monday right? After the weekend, when you've had the weekend to recharge, because what used to happen was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we all had our routines, you know, get up at the same time, go to work, come back, make dinner. Hopefully the kids are on the table. Thursday, you always ordered in Friday, you went out, right? So the sort of the optimality of the choices kind of decreased as the weekend approached and you need that weekend to replenish. And what we've seen with the pandemic is we've never had time to stop in, in at the beginning of the pandemic. You remember, you never knew what day of the week it was. Everything was a blur. All the things that used to demarcate the passage of time were blown out the window, mm -hmm. right? Work, home, all together at the same time. All these little micro decisions that we had to make about, do we wear masks? Do we get vaccinated? What about the kids? Who's going to lecture kids about daycare? All this stuff. Cognitively loaded us so much that our ability to make good decisions about the future went out the window. So anyways, sorry about that super long rant. <laughs> no, that was no. really cool. That's Those are really cool experiments. Um, and it, it all adds up to, I mean, it seems insurmountable to me, Pre. you know, like this is why, this is why I keep banging the drum on the fact that trying to leave this to individuals is just so misguided. You know, we're, we are bombarded constantly with complex decisions and, you know, the modern societies are not making that any less true. Um, if, if anything, our lives are getting more busy, more complicated. We're distracted by more devices. We're making more decisions throughout the day. The decisions have higher emotional valence. And so our capacity to think forward, 
make think long-term, maintain willpower and discipline is, I think, getting incrementally worse over time. Like to me, this is a, a, a prime case of we are setting ourselves up to fail. And the only way that we can um, make a major dent in individuals' ability to make better choices is to set in place or put in place regulations that basically force people to save. And, you know, this is why I, I, I find the superannuation or the Australian model so compelling, primarily not because, well, some of it is because whatever you're being forced to save is now being managed by, by prudent professionals. And we can argue all day about whether institutions generate stronger performance or better risk adjusted returns and whatever. I, I think professionals on average, and you don't need to be the most high skilled professional, but if you have some training in investing, you're going to do a better job than somebody who has no training in investing. I think we can all hopefully agree on that. And so notwithstanding that, you are now forcing people to save. And, and importantly, everybody is forced to save the same amount or a same proportion of your income up to, up to a certain level. And what that also avoids then is the multipolar trap um, potential of this sort of status seeking where you've got your group of friends happens to not be good savers. They all want to go on a, an expensive trip. You want to save, but your peer group is do is, is going a different way. And so you've got this status decision that you need to you need to make in addition to deferring consumption. And, you know, one of the things that I always come back to in terms of the psychological experiments is if you simply put down what the average person saves, um, you know, so when you're when you're hiring somebody and you're setting up their retirement accounts, if you simply put the average person saves X a month then the vast majority of people will just, you know, tick the box to save that amount, right? Again, indicating that we anchor to what our peers are doing, right? So you've got all of these different complications that make it almost impossible for most people to make good choices here. And my position is the only way you can get it right is, is through regulation. There is no set of incentives that are going to um, motivate enough people to make good choices. The only way to do it is to set up common standard and force everybody to make good choices in furtherance of their future self. Am I wrong? A lot of thoughts on that. I think it's, I think, you know, the spirit of what you're saying, I completely agree with in terms of you know, we know that one of the most powerful ingredients is starting to save early. And you don't even have to be a great investor. You just have to get started. And, and building up that habit of putting money away. And if you start, you know, a couple years earlier than the next guy, and in some cases, it's going to be a couple decades earlier than the next guy, because some people just don't get around to it until they sort of say, oh, I'm 50 and I haven't saved anything for retirement. I should probably do something about that. And all that that time that was wasted that, you know, even putting in a small amount, you know, when you've graduated school, we can see that how that can be completely transformative. And so so I, I agree that, you know, that would be beneficial. I think I think it's a tough sell. I think, you know, just in terms of 
being able to sell that to the masses, you're going to have like it would be such a divisive issue. But again, going back to think about, you know, um, teachers who have you know great pension plans and they look back and they're all like, man, thank God I had that that pension plan. But this is what I mean, Preet, because it wasn't that long ago where the vast majority of Canadians and Americans had defined benefit pension plans through their company and or through their government job, right? So, you know, it was what, 30, 40 years ago when companies decided that this was a disadvantageous liability on their balance sheets. And that so they advocated for the privatization of retirement savings. Mm-hmm. But this has been a profoundly destructive policy change for the vast majority of individuals. So, I mean, I hear you. Sure, there would be resistance, but it wasn't that long ago when everybody agreed that this was the most optimal approach. And it's really just corporate lobbyists that were successful in shifting gears on this 30 or 40 years ago. So I don't yeah, I, I think I think, you know, um, if you painted a scenario for someone which was kind of like this, we'll call it a utopia that you're describing, we'll say. The you know, utopia of the 60s and yeah, the 50s and, it, you know, in, into most of the 70s. Yeah. If you presented to people uh, a choice, say, listen, um, do you want to retire at 65 or do you want to retire at 80 or something like that? And just boil it down to, you know, when do you want to retire or transition from work into part, whatever the future of retirement looks like. Um and you just sort of boil it down to, yeah, I want to retire earlier, then, okay, well, then that means that we're going to take more out of your paycheck and put it into this called superannuation or whatever. I think a lot of people might say, yeah, that's that's kind of what I want. Because to your point about how complicated and how much noise there is and all the decisions that we have to make, we know that there is analysis paralysis that that sets into people. when When they are overwhelmed with all the different variables that they have to take into account, Sometimes they won't take any action because they're afraid of not making the optimal choice because there's just too much to know, right? So um, we've seen this with, uh, again, uh, there was a study that looked at 401k plan participation rates in the States. And what they found was if you, ex- if you had 59 different investment fund options uh, as part of your 401k plan, the employee participation rate was 60%. If it was like two or three options, which was basically, I think, Uh, long-term savings or short-term savings, the plan participation rate was 75%. And the, um, I don't know if you heard about that, that study, the tyranny of jam, but basically these researchers went to this, I think it was a Southern California grocery store and they set up these jam tasting stations and every couple of days they would change up the display. So some days it would have six different jams that people could sample and, and choose to buy from or not. And then some days it would be a wall of like 24 different jams to choose from. When people are only exposed to six jams, they're 10 times as likely to buy jam. No, we should do that for broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and what they found was for all the people who bought jam, if they were only exposed to six jams, they also rated their satisfaction as way higher. And essentially, if you think about it, if you are faced with six different jams, you can probably cross off two flavors that you know you don't like. You can sample two or three. And then what you're left with is almost complete information about what is the best best choice for you. Mm-hmm. But if you have 24 different choices of jams, you can maybe cross off five flavors. Maybe you taste five before you're like, that's enough sugar in one sitting. Much higher potential for regret. 14, yeah, and that leaves you with 14 jams that you don't know anything about. And so because you don't want to make the wrong choice or the not the most optimal choice, you don't make a choice at all. 
And that's how I think people look at, you know, um, all the financial decisions that they have right now. It is overwhelming all the things that they have to consider by themselves. And so to your point, if you could radically simplify things um, and just sort of make things as black and white as you can, I think you will actually have people making better choices. Um, but again, that's, there's that, that political component. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, we, um, Richard's got to get on a plane and um, you You guys can keep chatting. This is a great conversation. I have to say I, I, I'm almost uh, tempted to miss my flight here. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll have to get you back on just before you defend your thesis and um, before you never want to think about these topics again to, you know, uh, bring this, bring this full circle and, uh, and uh, really give people the full picture on how to think about um, seeking advice and finding the right advisor. But it definitely, I agree with you. It's an open question, you know, and I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I, 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 I genuinely think that this is a very hard problem and, and it's complicated by the fact that in my experience and I've got, and I know you've got sort of similar, we're probably of a, of a similar age, Preet, but you know, I've got maybe 25 years of in this business dealing with advisors and it's the most counterintuitive process imaginable because the least personable, least put together, you know, um, person often they're on some sort of personality disorder spectrum or whatever. These are the advisors that are most likely to do a great job for you, right? They're, they have the highest competency, the most credentials um, the, because of the fact that, that, you know, they may have some emotional deficits. They're actually more likely to stick to investment plans. Um, but, but they have the smallest AUM. They have this, they have very little AUM. Yes. They are not personable and therefore, you know, the average individual doesn't gravitate to them. Instead, the average person gravitates to great charismatic salespeople that often don't have any material skill in the investment and planning realm. And so that's a whole other dimension that makes this unbelievably complicated. I cannot tell you how many advisors I've seen wash out of the industry who should still be in the industry because they were great at planning and they just didn't have the sales component. And listen, I'd be happy to come back anytime. We could do three more hours just on the topic of advice and advice seeking and value of advice. And I'd be happy to do that anytime for you guys. hundred percent. We can, there's a lot to explore on the differences Tons. across geographies and, and cultures. And, we didn't and why even get uh, into things like judgment, anxiety and disclosure, anxiety that people feel when they're meeting with professionals. I mean, there is so many aspects we still have to talk about. Yeah. yeah we'll definitely no, have to right. get you back on. It needs to be a series. Pre- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks All so right. much for your time. Tell us yeah. where we where tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, yeah, la- latest thing that I've been working on and putting my efforts into is my YouTube channel. Um, so you can just find Preet Banerjee on YouTube, or just go to my website preetbanerjee.com. That's got links to most of the other stuff that I'm doing. Brilliant, awesome, love it. Thanks well, everyone good for luck tuning with your in. Move and good luck with your program. And um, yeah. thanks to everyone for tuning in, and have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. 
We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.